Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today we have another episode with our amazing co-host, Kai Davis, who is an outreach consultant, right? Yes, yes, that's true. Yes, thank you for coming today, Kai. Um, and today we're going to talk about finding the right words for your product, finding the right words for uh, your consulting service, for your SaaS app, and just describing that key phrase that really clicks within the minds of your audience. So Kai, having like 20 years of experience in that field, <laughs> now you have to share all our all your secrets with us. As, as long as you share your secrets with the audience as well. All right, I'll do my best. <laughs> so what is your like key uh, piece of advice when it comes to choosing the right words? So, so starting at a high level, I think the most important thing for a product owner to realize, somebody who's creating like a SaaS app or an ebook, any type of product, is you want the sales copy on your site, the language you use to talk to your customers, to be like a metaphorical mirror you're holding up to them. You want to use their words, you want to use their expressions, use how they actually describe their pains, because it'll come off as so much more authentic and real. Where if I, say, was launching a, a SaaS app for vet clinics and I tried to imagine what their pains were like and write a sales page, I might be able to make a decent guess at it, but it wouldn't sound convincing. It wouldn't be the actual language they use. So by taking that one further step and saying, well, how do I understand the words that my customers are actually using? How do I learn the phrases, the ways they describe their pains, the ways they talk about the solutions they're searching for and incorporate that into my copy, your service, again, whatever type of service or product you're selling becomes that much more convincing to the customer because they're able to read it, nod along and say, oh man, they're, they're using my language. They're talking like me. They're describing the pains I'm experiencing. And that's one less hurdle the customer needs to get over to buy. You've already convinced them that you understand them. Right. And taking one step back in that, you know, pyramid of things where, you know, there is copy and there is design and there is layout and your product copy is 75% of success and everything else splits the rest and, you know, miserably <laughs> because copy is absolutely the key to success here. Mm -hmm. So everything we, we have to discuss here are actually the methods of copywriting that mm -hmm. you are using to promote your product. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I completely agree. The The copy you use to talk to your customers can be so influential in your success. If you have, I mean, uh, I'm a big fan of Amy Hoy of Unicorn Free and 30 by 500. And she uses the phrase crispy to refer to well-written copy where it's tight. It uses the language your audience uses. It's well-formed. And contrast it with soggy copy where yeah, you aren't quite using the words your audience use. Maybe you're selling to vet clinics, but you refer to them in a different way. Or you're selling to entrepreneurs, but you keep referring to them as consultants. Soggy copy just doesn't match up with who your audience is or the problems they're experiencing. So we always want to shoot for crispy, tuned copy instead of soggy, wishy-washy copy. Which is actually what 
everybody produces when they first sit down and try to write something, right? Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> um, what was your first experience with sales copywriting in your life? Oh, let me think here. It probably was... Oh, that, that takes me back. You know, my first experience was probably writing descriptions for eBay auctions, but my first real paid experience was uh, my first day job writing sales copy for our website. We had a few educational products we sold and I being the junior marketing guy when I started out was tapped to write the product description since eh, who cares about the product descriptions? We could have the junior person write them. But the truth is those product descriptions are what the customers are going to be reading. That's what's going to get the customer from thinking, eh, maybe I'm going to buy this to actually wanting to buy it. And so I probably committed every mistake I could in the book. I used <laughs> me-focused language instead of you-focused language. I guessed at the pains the product was solving instead of talking with the customers and researching the pains that the product actually solved for them. And in the end, it was so-so copy. So-so copy is better than no copy, but it still wasn't convincing real copy. And I didn't understand how to write that until I started talking with our customers. Right. And uh, what did you discover then? What, what I discovered was that the way the customer uses the product or the way the customer envisions the problem that they're having, that the product is a solution for, is almost always different than what I, the product creator, envisions. So uh, uh, in the case of this company, we were developing educational media and we had a research team. We had a good idea of how the product was being used in the field. But we didn't know how the teachers themselves were referring to the product or referring to the problems the product helped them solve. And so once I discovered that just by sitting down on the phone with a couple customers and saying, tell me about the product. What benefits did you receive? How did it help you? What, what are the challenges you're experiencing? And just taking notes on the language they used, how they described the problems, I was able to upgrade my sales copy dramatically since suddenly in the headline, I was able to say, are you experiencing problem X? If so, here's the solution. And any teacher that ended up on that sales page who was experiencing that problem suddenly was able to say, hey, that that's what I'm dealing with. Okay, I better keep on reading. I, I think it's David Ogilvie who has this great quote that says, the only job your headline has in your copy is to get the person to read the next line in your copy. And the only job that line, that line of the first paragraph has is to get them to read the second line. So if you dial in your headline, if you dial in your copy and think of each paragraph having the job of moving the person down and forward and further on through the copy, then you start seeing, well, the objective here is to make sure the copy resonates with the customer. It speaks directly to them. It speaks to the problems they have and uh, uh, the negatives they're experiencing. That moves them forward and they're able to say, oh, yeah, this is exactly what I'm dealing with. I need a solution. And then you're able to present your product as that solution. That's right. Uh, were there any like eye-opening moments there? Maybe you could see, um, give us some example that would be, you know, a perfect example how you can make that mistake of choosing your own words instead of customers' words. It's a really, really good question. I I can't think of a good like a concrete example in my history, but it's much. What I've seen happen is. I end up choosing my own words when I haven't done any research about the audience or when I'm just desperate to get some copy on the page and I start making assumptions about what problems they're experiencing. And 
the only real solution for that is to go out into the wild and start researching the audience, looking at the problems they post about online, looking at the language they use, talking to them directly, doing some customer interview phone calls, all different tactics that work really, really well and help you write better copy. But in terms of what are the signs when you're writing sort of soggy, crappy copy, I think it's, it's, it's when you start making the assumption that you are your user or you are your end customer and you write that sales page assuming you are your buyer. And when you, when you start writing copy that way, it gets a bit soggy and it gets a bit off the mark because you probably aren't your end user. You probably aren't exactly like the person you envision buying your product. So if you're writing the copy for yourself instead of the customer, it's going to be a little off the mark and not performing as well. So I think it's always great to approach copywriting from a research-based perspective, starting off saying, where can I find the people who are going to be buying this? What are the problems they're experiencing? What are the solutions? What's the language they're using? And then grab that, save it to a swipe file, build up a database of phrases that they use. And when it comes time to write that sales page, suddenly you're able to say, oh, I need I need a really effective way to describe the pain they're experiencing. Well, thankfully, I've got three pages of notes here. Oh, great. Here, here's one person who used this really, really succinct phrase of the problem. I'm going to put that in my headline. And suddenly that headline uses the customer's own language. Absolutely. Um, there are many techniques we can use here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're introduced by different authors. For example, um, my introduction to the world of copy happened when I started reading Copy Hacker's book. And uh, Joanna really raves about going to Amazon and reading reviews on your competitor, like products, books, etc. on the topic. And um, I think this is a really cool thing because uh, people who write reviews are really indifferent. They're quite emotional. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what we want to have. And uh, But I think this is just a very small example of what we call sales safari, right? Yeah. Can you, can you give our, our audience an idea what, what sales safari is and how it works? Absolutely. So the sales safari process is something that Amy Hoy, uh, again, of 30 by 500 came up with as a way to research customers. And uh, uh, the name, as far as I know, comes from the idea of going out into the wild, like a safari into the jungle and studying your customers in their native habitat. So if you want, if you are building a SaaS or a product and you want to sell to, let's say, mm, throw out an audience or throw out a potential audience. Mm, not teachers. <laughs> oh, don't sell to teachers. <laughs> um, let's say uh, developers. So we're building a SaaS oh. for developers. So Ruby on Rails developers. Yeah, they say don't build SaaS for developers either. (laughs) (laughs) They're too smart. They're too smart and they want too much. (laughs) (laughs) But still, for this example, let's just say we're building something for uh, Ruby on Rails developers. Right. We'd want to go out into the wild and see, well, what are the communities that Ruby on Rails developers are already taking part in? What are the forms they're posting in, the mailing lists they contribute to, the blogs they read, the podcasts they read, the books they purchase and leave reviews for, and then just start soaking it in. Study, again, like you're going on a safari to study wild animals, just observe how these people are interacting in the wild. 
the language they're using to describe the problem and the issues that they're highlighting. And just by doing this customer research, and it could be as small as 30 minutes a day, three or four days a week, you start to build up a robust picture of not only the language the customers are using, but the pains that they're describing. And you might start off saying, I'm going to build a SaaS. It's going to help Ruby on Rails developers write better code. But you go out into the wild and you start studying the audience and suddenly you see, well, nobody out there is actually saying, ah, gee, my problem is I want to write better code. They're saying, I wish my unit tests took a shorter amount of time, or I wish I had a better way of collaborating with other members of my team. And so you go on the sales safari and suddenly you're able to understand the pains and problems that your customers, your audience are experiencing and from that, you're able to build an even better product. Since instead of going off to the lab, spending 12 months building the perfect thing and then showing up and saying, hey, I've, I've, I've got a thing. Does anybody want to buy it? You've started off by studying the audience and saying, well, what actually are they asking for? What pains are they actually highlighting here? And suddenly you're able to build a SaaS or a product, any sort of thing in the world to solve that specific pain, be it a small pain or a large pain, and know that people are already asking for a solution to this. It's sort of like if you wanted to sell medicine, you go out and see, well, are people sick? What, what problems are they having? Does everybody have the flu right now? Okay, I'm going to go make something to solve the flu. You aren't going to say, oh, gee, maybe an illness is sort of like this. I'll make medicine and hope somebody could use it. You start off by seeing what problems people are actually experiencing and then build the product and write the copy to those problems. Yes, and uh, once again, the nature of this word, sales safari, it um, it is the opposite of actually doing customer interviews because mm -hmm. people, uh, when they're in the setting of a customer interview, they're completely in a cage and they're all enclosed into this emotional, uh, you know, state of conversation with you. And they really want to offend you. They will never tell you the truth. First, because they want to be polite. And second, because they don't really know what actual needs they're going to have today or tomorrow or ever. But when we go out to the forum, we're um, instantly at the state when we really want to know the answer to our painful problem. And this is a completely different, very natural state of things. And that's where we want to capture those words. Mm -hmm. and jumping onto the, the issues with customer interviews for a second, there's a great Dilbert cartoon that's always stuck in my mind where uh, Dilbert is told by his boss, okay, you get to set the budget for the next year. And he's wandering around the office asking people, tell me, how, how would you feel if you only had half as much electricity to use next year as you do this year? And everybody's like, what? How, how do I even answer that question? And I think that sort of gets at the issues with customer interviews. They're valuable for getting some information, but when you sit down with a potential customer and say, well, tell me, what are the biggest problems you have? People are either going to draw a blank or make up something or choose the most recent problem or pain they've had. It's harder to identify whether there's actually an issue there or actually something valuable you could solve. But when you go out and read a forum and you see like, oh, wow, there's a post here that has, you know, 1,300 replies to it and 50,000 views talking about my number one issue with XYZ, that, that's a big painful problem. If you poke that, people are going to start screaming. Suddenly you've discovered a pain in the wild that you can solve, but customers might not bring up because it wasn't at the front of their minds when you started asking them questions. 
Absolutely. I remember in the last episode, we promised that we are going to walk through your products mm -hmm. and uh, apply and practice the rules how to actually put together these words to describe your product or service. Absolutely. So tell us, what did you do like over years and how your naming skills improved and how you nail your <laughs> you know, positioning phrase that making, which is today making you thousands of dollars? So when I started out, I, 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 again, like I committed all the errors in the world where I said, I want to sell a thing like X, be it a consulting service or a product. So I'm just going to make a thing and see if it solves it. Uh, the first product I ever created actually was, this is a fun story, was a guidebook to this virtual assistant service called Fancy Hands. I love the service. I still love it. And uh, uh, I was on the unlimited plan for it. And I said, well, it's 150 bucks a month. I wish this was cheaper. I don't know what. I'm going to write a product. I'm going to write an ebook that explains how to get the most out of fancy hands. I'm going to promote it for free. But throughout the book, I'm going to use my affiliate code. And every time somebody signs up with it, I'll make 15 bucks. If I get 10 right. people signing up a month, it'll pay for itself. <laughs> it ended up paying for itself. But I never did any research on what issues people actually had using fancy hands. I just started out saying, gee, what info can I share? And I wrote a 7,500 word book about like, here's how to use fancy hands better. But I never applied a research process to understand what problems do people actually have with fancy hands that I could educate them out of having. And so the product, while a success in terms of paying my monthly subscription to the service, wasn't as crispy or dialed in as it could be. So that's a good example of the old method and how it produced a product that sure people enjoyed. I got 800 to a thousand downloads of it, but it wasn't dialed into what people actually needed. Now we contrast it with one of the newer products I have. I'm working on a product called the traffic manual. It's a guide on how to use podcasts and guest articles to increase the traffic to your website, build your authority and expertise and, and uh, build your audience online. I've, spent the last year and a half researching the issues that product creators and consultants have getting traffic, making sales and building their online reputation until I really understood both the pains that they experience and how I could put together a small solution that teaches them how to solve that problem, how to solve that pain. And so when it comes to writing this book, I'm able to draw on the year and a half of research I've done just studying my audience in the wild, people who create products, people who sell on services online and say, well, what exactly are the pains here? How do I create something that solves those pains? What exactly did you do for a year and a half? So it was a combination of working directly with consulting clients. I started out saying, I started out first by just researching an audience of people who sell products online to understand well, what are the issues they experience. And after reading a few, oh, please. What did you discover? <laughs> After reading a couple forums, I saw the issue that came up time and time again was, how do I get more traffic to my website? It's, it's, I think, one of the most fundamental problems. We build a great thing, we launch a great thing, and then nothing. Nobody shows up. We aren't making any sales. This is terrible. It, it, it's, it's the worst outcome possible. And so I saw that there was a problem here and I said, okay, I want to make something that's going to solve this problem. I don't want to invest the time in creating a pure product yet. I know there's a pain here. What if I launch a consulting service, high end, a couple thousand dollars a month targeting this pain. And so I wrote up a sales page using the words I discovered through the Safari. 
and said, okay, great. I'm going to offer the service, the traffic power up to customers and see if they buy it. And so over the last year and a half, I've had, I think, 15 or so customers uh, for that product. And so over multiple months, I was able to interview these customers who were paying me between $1,000 and $3,000 and say, well, what are the issues here? What are the pains here? What are the problems here? And learn from them the problems that they were actually experiencing. Hand in hand with that, I was doing firsthand research, going into forums online, going into Slack communities, uh, going to conferences and events, and just soaking in, well, what are the issues people keep kibitzing about? What are the things people keep complaining about? What are the problems that keep coming up again? Saving those just to a swipe file in Evernote. And so I started building up this database, really highlighting, oh, these are the issues that people are having. These are the problems that they're experiencing. And this is the language they use to describe those problems. So what does the headline say for the traffic manual? Um, that is a wonderful question. I can't remember. <laughs> I think it's something like, uh, uh, let me see if I have that easily accessible. Um, uh, because uh, headline, as we all know, among those 75% of success that the copy has, yeah. <laughs> 75% of those 75%, are the headline and the subhead for a product, right? Yep, yep. And uh, for, for the traffic manual, the title is the traffic manual. The subtitle is a guide to getting more traffic for your product, app, and service. And the headline is, want more traffic? So from the get-go, I'm really focusing in on that fundamental need that my ideal buyer has. They have a thing, they want more traffic for that thing. And so I use the introduction, I use the headline, I use those first paragraphs just to focus in on, you've launched a thing, but you aren't getting enough traffic. You've tried a number of things, social media, pay-per-click, search engine optimization, but none of those have really worked for you. Or maybe one has worked, but it started to peter out. So I'm paint before I even get into what the product does and what the solution is, I want to paint a picture of the problem the customer's experiencing, the pain that they're experiencing along with that problem, and draw them into that narrative of, oh, these are the issues I'm having. Okay, I'm convinced that there's a problem here tell me what the solution is. So by first educating the customer on the problem, it makes it easier to sell them on the solution. Uh, there's an author, Sean DeSouza, who wrote the book, The Brain I'm, about, I'm thinking about that right now. <laughs> I'm like, I should bring it up. You bring it up. You bring it up. <laughs> All right. No, you mentioned his name. So he's a wonderful guy who's teaching people to sell things, actually to write long form sales copy. And what he says is that you have to make your customer stop in his tracks, like freeze, because he sees like a blistering bad problem. Because that's the only thing that can make him stop in the middle of the day, you know, because he has so many other things bothering him. 100%. And there are other, a few more, actually. Would you like to go like over the basic principles of uh, the brain audit? W one of the things I think one of the main fundamental ideas is your, your job as your job when you're selling a product isn't to pitch people on the solution. When somebody comes and starts to talk to you about, oh, you have a thing, tell me about it. Your job is to pitch them on the problem that it solves. So he has a wonderful example he shared on a recent episode of The Business of Freelancing where you have a beautiful car, gorgeous red car. You take it out driving on the weekends. Anytime anybody asks you about your car, you're like, my car's perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. But as soon as you bring the car to the mechanic and the mechanic says, hey, you know what? your timing belt, your cam belt is about to give out. And if that does, 
It's going to ruin your engine. It's going to cost you $5,000. And you're going to be stranded on the side of the road on one of your weekend drives and need to call a tow truck to drive, to pull the car back to the mechanic. Suddenly, all you can think about is that timing belt. You never worried about it before. You never even thought you needed to replace it before. But now you're fixated on this problem. So by starting out by really identifying the problem that your customer is experiencing. And when they say, well, you've got a solution here. Tell me about the solution. Focusing in on, let's not even talk about like what a timing belt is. Let's talk about the pain you'll experience when that timing belt suddenly snaps and your engine turns into just a hot piece of metal on the side of the road. <laughs> You're like, oh my God, I, 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 need to, I need to pay money to fix this. So our job when selling a product isn't to talk about ourselves or the product yet, our job is to talk about the painful problem the customer has and then lead them into the solution, getting a replacement timing belt. Right. So um, I have a few like life lessons about uh, head- headlines and subheads. And, uh, you know, one of them is using plain words, not trying to be smart and just using plain natural language, which is like crispy clear. And don't use like... How do you say it? Wordplay, metaphors, whatever makes you look good. It just doesn't make any sense to the to the reader. Mm-hmm. So put it in plain words and uh, start with the pain. However, I really found it useful in my audience to use the subhead to kind of really briefly describe what your product does. Let's say the format, the audience, the quick or like quick idea so that uh, when they continue reading about the pain, et cetera, et cetera, they already have the context of what's going to be pitched next so that they don't have to be, you know, um, diving into that copy if they cannot afford the format over $3,000 workshop, for example. Right. They're not just tuned for it. However, I imagine that does contradict a bit uh, with basic principles, but I think it's fair to give a short overview of that to customers. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree. And like the, the wonderful thing about basic principles is like they're basic principles. They're building blocks that you start with and you get to a point where you say, okay, I see the framework here. I see the lesson here and I see how I could apply it in different ways. So it's not that there's one right way, all capital letters there to write copy. It's that there's multiple lessons we could draw on to become better copywriters, to write copy that convinces our customers that the solution we have is the right one for them. And we're able to pick and choose the different strategies that work for us as writers or work for our customers. And through that become better copywriters, just like there's no one right way to write code or one right, one right way to design. There's multiple tactics, multiple techniques you could draw on. And that lets you become a better, whatever it is you are. Absolutely. And, um, one more thing, these rules can be quite irrational because going back to the pain, when you're describing your basic pitch about your product, it should not look like it is a knowledge-based, let's say, it's a knowledge-based platform that allows content exchange for <laughs> I'm already asleep I just fell asleep. <laughs> this this. yeah uh, your description should start with like you'll know that when you do something then that this and that when you go to college um, they actually tell you when you give definitions to things not to start with when mm-hmm. because this is illiterate however in real life it's better to start with a when to give people a context a problem then goes your solution in real people's world yeah Yep, absolutely. There, there's, 
there's so many skills that you learn in college or when you study writing in an academic setting that don't necessarily apply when you're trying to write copy for an audience <laughs> because it's not how people read and it's not how people necessarily talk. You have to find that happy medium between an effective writing style and how your customers actually communicate. There's a, a great example, I think Ramit Sethi shared on a podcast episode a while ago where one of his friends sells a dating product and Ramit was reading the sales page and he was like, you have typos everywhere. Like this is, this is horribly written. What's going on? Like you got to give me a chance. I'm going to write a new version of the sales page and we're going to split test it and see which one does better. So Ramit goes in, writes a new version of the sales page, cleans up all the typos, all the grammar. And guess what happens? Nothing or the raise like 300%. Ramit's perfectly written version does terrible. Maybe it sells right. one-tenth as many copies <laughs> because the original sales page for all its issues, for all its poor grammar, it was written how the product owner's audience talked. And so they read through the sales page and they were like, oh, this is how I communicate. This is what I'm used to. I'm going to buy. I have that trust where the more cleanly polished sales page, well, it didn't quite speak to the customers as well and it didn't convert as well. Right. There is this uh, area of expertise called conversion rate optimization. When people run all kinds of experiments with, you know, design copy or whatever you can change on your landing page. And, you know, the results are completely unpredictable. And there are just a few experts in, in this area because not everybody's split testing everything all the time. Not everybody has resources and not everybody has a statistically significant results to do that. So um, the expert in this area, they're rare, but the findings are so surprising sometimes like this one. And it, it's, it's crazy when you start digging into copy and seeing what does convert and what doesn't convert. And if you're lucky enough to have enough traffic to get st statistically significant results on your tests, then you're able to start doing a lot of fun things like seeing, well, which of these headlines actually does convert better? Which one of these gets more people opting in or more people buying my product? And then you're able to iteratively optimize your product instead of saying, oh, great, time to push out a new marketing site. You could make small incremental changes. Absolutely. So we went to, through two of your products, uh, the guide for fancy hands, <laughs> the traffic manual. Uh, we mentioned the traffic power up. Mm -hmm. And um, what else do you have right now? Oh, we wanted to break down how you actually nailed that wording, that positioning that you are an outreach consultant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to hear that story one more time. Sure, sure. So <laughs> So let's start with the reason why I uh, decided to identify as an outreach consultant. I, I was selling search engine optimization services to help people solve that problem of, I'm not getting enough traffic. But the issue I ran into time and time again was that as soon as I said, I'm a search engine optimization consultant, people would have a preformed idea of what that was, what an engagement with me would be like, how much I'd cost, and the solution I'd be selling. And so it would be like walking into a doctor's office, assuming that the doctor's a quack and everything he's going to tell me will be a lie. And it didn't go that well for me. I'd get on calls with prospects and they'd say, oh, great, you do SEO. You'll get us to page one in two months and you're $500 a month. And I was like, uh, we're wrong about the counts there. So I saw that the words I was using to describe my services didn't quite line up with the... Uh, uh, type of audience I wanted and the type of results I wanted to sell. So I wanted to find a new way to describe exactly what it was I was doing 
that my audience didn't really understand from the get-go and would make them pause and say, what's that? Tell me more. How, how can that help my business? So after talking with a mutual friend of ours, Jonathan Stark, he said, well, let's break down what exactly it is you're doing. So I broke down what my projects usually look like. And a lot of it is building relationships on behalf of my customers, whether it's helping them get more links, whether it's helping them get on podcasts, I'm going out there and doing outreach, email outreach, emailing people on their behalf and building and managing their relationships for them. And he said, okay, great. Well, nobody really owns the phrase outreach consultant, but it does a great job at communicating both what you do while leaving it really open in the customer's mind so they don't have a preconceived notion of exactly what it is you're selling. So I decided to make that leap and say, okay, great. I'm Kai Davis, an outreach consultant. And as soon as I made that switch, the conversations with clients went so much better. I still was selling the same solutions. I'm going to help you get more traffic. I'm going to help you get more links. I'm going to help you improve your SEO. But instead of them saying, oh, great, you're fitting in this box I have in my mind, I was able to define that conversation from the get-go and steer it in the direction I wanted it to go. So let's go over the functions that right wording can actually, the benefits that they can give you. First is um, trying to escape the kind of stamp that you get whenever you're choosing not a popular name or a popular name. Mm -hmm. And the second is uh, to position yourself in a premium you know, scale just because you are naming yourself a different thing. You're managing expectations. You are setting, you know, high standards for everybody and just totally different person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Uh, uh, it's, it's dangerous to let your customers start naming you or putting you in a box because you suddenly lose a lot of that autonomy in terms of the skill sets you're providing and the deliverables you want to provide. When I was identifying as an SEO consultant, I'd have people come to me and saying, well, great, we need you to get more links for us, or we need you to do a keyword research report. And there are things that often are associated with SEO, but not skills I wanted to practice or deliverables I wanted to produce. But by defining myself as an outreach consultant, it's so much easier to say, hey, these are the three things I do as an outreach consultant. If you need something outside of the scope, well, you need somebody who does something else. But if you need outreach work, boom, I can help you with these three things incredibly well. So it really lets me handle that narrative and steer that conversation in the right direction. Was there any turning point when you named yourself a different person or did you start to charge twice as much? <laughs> How did it happen? Um, um, let me think here. It actually did coincide with me raising my rates after I started identifying as an outreach consultant. It was coincidentally. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure whether it was a result it. of or <laughs> just happened at the same time, but it was easier for me to sell people on my services because they didn't have preconceived notions of how much it should cost. And so I was able to start associating the deliverables I was producing with the value to the client instead of what they assumed the cost was. And because I was able to price based on value, I was able to ratchet up the rate. And so while I might be performing the same work for a client today that it was a year ago, by removing myself from that box of SEO consultant and defining myself as an outreach consultant and tying the results to the value that they'd get, it's much, it was much easier for me to charge that higher premium rate and have clients say, oh, wonderful, this is worth the value or worth the price we're investing. We're getting a ton of value out of it. And as I kept getting that feedback, I kept raising my rate. Great. I have a very similar story with my productized consulting service. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it was essentially, you know, 
myself, a UI UX consultant, coming in and doing like a chunk of UI work every month. But the name I smartly put it <laughs> was uh, monthly creative direction, which, you know, it suddenly gives you a different angle of things. You just think of that, you know, uh, expensive specialist, expensive professional serv- a person mm-hmm. who can be on your team, but it, you just see, you know, uh, six digits, six digits, <laughs> no, put, dancing all over the place. And now uh, whatever price tag comes after that, it's compared to the salary of a consultant full-time mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, a poor Odesk soul who comes and does 20 hours of design for you. <laughs> and that was life-changing. And even though it was uh, essentially the same design, like wireframes and sketches and stuff, people got completely different attitude to things. They would listen to my opinion as a creative director. Mm-hmm. Well, luckily I have a place in my biography where I was called a creative director for a few <laughs> years. Uh, but at that point, that was uh, half actually uh, managing designers and half actually taking the decisions that creative directors take. So there are a few angles of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's great when you have that to back it up, but there is actually nothing preventing you to use whatever words you like to describe yourself. Absolutely. Really. And nobody should be afraid of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's it's completely transmutable. Uh, I, I could see myself down the line changing the words I use to describe the services I provide or the words I use to describe myself as a consultant, depending on what audience I want to target. If, again, it all comes back to researching that audience if I decide to switch focuses to a different audience and I do some safariing and research that audience and see, oh, they're experiencing this pain and they refer to this pain in a particular way, I might want to add that into or replace my title with that new phrase because now when a customer comes to my site, they'll say, oh, he's XYZ, I have XYZ problem, perfect. And somebody who comes to you and says, well, I need creative direction, great. That's, that's how you've defined yourself. They're going to say, I know what I need. She's using the right words. Let's work together. And it becomes a match from the get-go. However, nobody in the world would ever say, I want creative direction. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. So going back to that pain point, first, you have to declare that pain that's familiar to them and then introduce the concept of your service. Mm-hmm. Even though the words are familiar, it's not yet familiar uh, to like uh, to their worldview because uh, it's all like we classify people as designers and developers and there is no place for anybody else like outreach consultants, right. creative directors, whoever, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so you really have to do hard work yourself plenty of times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, uh, I've also been amazed at how this, this deviates a bit, but how the value that a client assigns to a product or a service or a consulting engagement can really be tied to the price we charge that by raising the price, it could be a a signal of the quality and not just, Oh, I'm charging more for the service that the same engagement priced at $500 or $5,000, more people could be interested in it at 5,000 because they say, wow, if they're confident enough to charge $5,000 for this engagement, they must really know their stuff. I'm willing to invest in them. Where if somebody's charging $500, it might be like, well, that's going to take them like 50 hours. So they're only making like 10 bucks an hour. I'm not that confident in them and their ability. So price, just as 
uh, just as the words we use to describe what we're selling can be a great signal of quality. And we see that with a lot of successful software as a service apps, as they raise that price, suddenly like, wow, uh, uh, I think Bounce Exchange is a great example. They do uh, uh, exit intent pop-ups and A-B testing for them as a sort of productized service, software as a service model, but they're charging something like $5,000 a month for it. And it's a crazy, ludicrous number when you're like, I'm paying $5,000 a month for an exit intent, intent pop-up that appears when somebody tries to leave my website. What? But by charging that higher price, suddenly they're able to have that conversation of, well, why is this worth $5,000? Well, because we're going to run three split tests every month to make sure we're constantly improving how many visitors we're capturing and getting into your funnel because we're going to be providing direction and strategic expertise. And suddenly that gives direction. I just, I think I read the case study um, for them and uh, the idea was on their sales page, they didn't just say, we're going to track your mouse so that it moves towards the cross button, but they use some words like, you know, artificial intelligence engine of tracking your mouse movement, uh, like uh, predicting and some other incredible scientific words mm -hmm. <laughs> so that it really makes you want to pay money for it. Yep, yep. High value words and words that their target audience, like, like you could, if we want to pick on them for a second, their audience is people who have a successful business who could afford this level of investment. And if they could afford a $3,000 or a $5,000 a month cost, well, they're going to be pretty intelligent and pretty savvy at business. So they're making the right decision to use copy that correctly targets those users. If you contrast it with a $10 a month or a free service, uh, it's going to use slightly different copy because they're trying to sell to the person who's budget and price conscious and looking for something that's free and easy to use and a quick and simple setup versus artificial intelligence and data-driven mouse tracking to make sure and XYZ features. So again, it comes down to the copy to make sure you're talking to the right customer in the right way in my old days in an agency our director our ceo he would you know run to moscow and close huge deals with the big entertainment companies and uh, his lesson was you know name your brand so that people are really willing to give your money mm -hmm. so we did a lot of naming projects together um and i was like there are so many companies out there who name like, you know, Blue Rabbit software or stuff like that. And they're nameless and uh, endless naming opportunities. So, uh, you know, all the domain names are taken. So something like Blue Rabbit and, you know, White Kitten and stuff like that. It's a really good trick. <laughs> However, <laughs> being a White Rabbit consulting company does not really give you, you know, the perception of expertise. It does not put you like in black suit and the tie yep. it puts you in um pajama pants yep. even though i mean uh pajama pants and onesies have been uh popular lately <laughs> <laughs> but uh you're, you're you're absolutely right like even when it comes down to the business name you're communicating something to your audience you're communicating the value i think that a great example is uh i think is david d'angelo uh, old school internet marketer has this site, doubleyourdating.com. And it's entirely focused on, hey, these are info products and courses that are going to help you have a better dating life and go on more dates. And from the get-go, you start at the domain name, Double Your Dating. It's incredibly focused on the outcome and the result. That rings a bell. Rings a couple, rings a couple uh, bells. Speaking of... <laughs> 
<laughs> quite a few bells. Seriously, um, let's say Brennan Dunn, double your freelancing. Yeah. And stuff in yep. your brand, your brand, yep. <laughs> double your audience. Yep. And, and in both cases, in Brennan's case of double your freelancing and in my case of double your audience, uh, we're both focused on the outcome that the person is looking for. In Brennan's case, it's helping people build a more sustainable freelancing business. So, well, double your freelancing means I'm going to have more clients. I'm going to make more money. In my case, with double your audience, the outcome that my customer wants is we have more people that are clued into our product. We have more people that are passionate fans that are members of our audience. If we double our audience, well, we're going to have more people waiting and ready to buy, more people on our email list, more people who are out there evangelizing our product. So uh, uh, while I definitely was inspired by Brennan and David D'Angelo in the name, I think there's a great lesson we could take away there where names matter. The words you call something really help people see the outcome it can produce. And I do the same with the consulting services I offer. My top tier consulting service right now is named Traffic Power Up because again, the outcome that my customer wants is more traffic. So from the get-go, I said, hey, great, the name is going to be Traffic Power Up. And as soon as somebody hears that, they think, okay, this is a thing I buy to get more traffic. If they're in the market for more traffic, I've already made that connection with them where this is an answer to that problem you have. I have a confession to make. Um, you know that book by Sean D'Souza? Mm -hmm. um, it's called The Brain Audit. And um, my new book is called The UI Audit. And it was very, very heavy inspiration. Mm -hmm. However, taken in another field, nobody's ever going to remember that. But, you know, the concept of UI audit really rings a bell with people. You kind of get the picture of what you're going to be getting while buying this book. Absolutely. And uh, same with the brain audit. And it was just a brilliant book. I highly recommend it to anybody who's doing sales copy. Oh, gosh, yeah. It's, it's on my list of top three books I've read this year. I think it's 11 bucks on Amazon. And it's... Uh, it is worth its weight in gold. Unfortunately, it's an ebook, so it doesn't weigh anything. But it is honestly <laughs> an amazing, amazing investment for anybody that's interested in understanding why customers buy, why customers don't buy, and how to use sales copy to turn those customers who aren't going to buy into customers who are going to buy. Speaking of great books on the on copywriting, I can extremely recommend um, all the books by uh, Joanna Weeb and Copy Hackers brand. Mm -hmm. They are amazing. I started, yes, I started with them uh, first, and I tried to launch like a micro-productized consulting service without knowing the words productized consulting like three years ago. And one of my clients who was kind of uh, having a mentoring relationship with me, he said, well, I was so much proud of the looks of the site. Oh, my God. But he's like, mm, the copy's not perfect. I was like, does the copy even matter? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, in my brain. But he was, mm, no, you have to really spend time. Go buy books by copy hackers and read them and stuff. And I just did that. And that was my entry point to the whole freaking universe that we are in right now. Yeah. Because that's a world where copy matters more than design or whatever. Mm -hmm. And where really, you know, uh, sales process is just the key of any business. And it takes well to understand that 100 <laughs> percent. i've i've had the most success internalizing a lot of the lessons of writing good copy by writing good copy and if if somebody listening to this is saying well great that that's great kai but i don't have a service or i don't have a product what am i supposed to write copy for one really really great tactic that i used for around a year was to just take 
copies of famous sales letters. So old letters you'd see in uh, direct mail campaigns or sales letters on web pages or uh, long form ads in newspapers and just take 30 minutes every morning and copy them by hand. Just so I started internalizing what it feels oh like God. to write good copy. <laughs> and so I just set a 30 minute timer, pull out my notebook and have it up on the screen and just copy it down. The headlines, the paragraphs, the content. Maybe typing could do the trick. <laughs> I, I think typing could do the trick. I think uh, one of my beliefs is that when you write by hand, it uses different parts, different mechanisms in your brain than when you type. Right. So when you, mm-hmm. when, when I was in college, I'd always take notes by hand instead of typing on the computer, even though my handwriting is atrocious, because I felt it would help me understand the material better. Same with copywriting. By practicing writing these sales pages by hand in just an old loose leaf notebook, I started seeing the different elements to the sales pages. Okay, we start out with the pain, we go into the solution, we talk about the audience, we go into the product, we go into the guarantee, we answer the questions. And it helped me understand how to write better sales pages without having to have a product myself to write that sales page for. Yes, absolutely. I second every word you say. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I think we have plenty of great things for today's episode. And let me sum up key takeaways Mm -hmm. just in plain English. Copy matters. Sales copy matters more than anything else in your world. Use the language of your customers. Use simple words. Name whatever you do. And, you know, make great use of the product name because that's exactly where positioning happening, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm going to link to all the books we mentioned here in the show notes. So dive into those. And uh, see you, Kai, in the next episode. What are we going to be discussing? Let me see. We are going to be talking about cold outreach, your main domain. I'm so excited to chat about it. I uh, spent a lot of time thinking about it, so I'm excited to uh, share it with the listeners. All right. Uh, Thank you, Kai. See you next time. See you next time.